Does God change his mind? Is it possible that on one day he thinks one thing and the next day he thinks something different? More importantly, is it possible that the prayers of his saints can influence God to change his mind? If the mind of God is fixed, is it useless to pray for a change of direction? Today on Craving Answers, Craving God, we'll take up the question, does God change his mind? I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor of St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, here's a quote from Isaiah 55. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, that's God's ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So is the mind of God so high that the question of whether or not he can change his mind doesn't even make sense? I think that's a great way to start the conversation off. This is a a, a very complicated question um, in in Christian thought. Uh, you know, does God change His mind? Can prayer cause God to change His mind? That sort of thing. Um, and right off the bat, here, I, I like your uh, that text you quoted from Isaiah fifty five about God's ways being higher than ours. I think it's important to say that if God is God, if He is actually a supreme being, we should be fully prepared and anticipate that the way he works is not going to be comprehensible to us. If we can, I can't figure out, I can't even figure out the human beings that are in my life. I can't even figure, I don't even know how I work, honestly. I can't even figure out what's going on in my head. Sometimes I should be fully prepared to believe that if God exists, he's going to be the kind of being that's not comprehensible to us. Now, it doesn't mean just because I can't figure out what's going on with my wife and the decisions she makes and, and stuff like that sometimes, it doesn't mean that I don't understand her at all, that it's worthwhile trying to learn her and uh, trying to figure her out and conversations and that sort of thing. So I think this will be a good conversation today, but I do like that you started off with, this is going to be difficult and we should be fully prepared to walk away from here with at least part of us saying, we still don't know what's going on. Here's another kind of silly question. Just try to humor me here. Can you attempt to quantify for me the distance between the highness of the thoughts of God and the lowness of the thoughts of the rest of us? How big is that distance? Because I think we tend to project our own way of thinking about things onto sure, God yeah. and we imagine that he evaluates things the way we do. We know it's higher. How much higher? Well, so we don't know because you just don't know what you don't know, That's right? That's why I said humor. Yeah. Humor me here. Um, I don't know. I've heard some people kind of grapple with this before. I, I heard a, a preacher say one time that, um, uh, you know, say, say you have a, a, a pet of some sort, you know, a cat. Um that cat doesn't understand you. That cat doesn't know. That cat doesn't understand anything about microeconomics or, uh, you know, how, how uh, uh, spontaneous, how, how uh, uh, internal combustion engine works. That cat doesn't know anything about, you know, true love. And that cat looks at you, though, and that cat thinks that you're one of it. 
you know, the cat just assumes that you're, it can interact with you on, you know, long time family pets just become, they start to think that they're one of the family, you know, maybe even uh, think that they're a little bit human. And this preacher I heard say that in much the same way, we, we look at God and we know something about him. We, we interact with him the same way that we interact with our, the same way our pets interact with us. And so we can know a little bit about him. And, um, but, but the problem is we start to think that he's like us and he isn't, he's even, this is what the preacher said. He is, he is as great above us and as incomprehensible to us as we are to the cat. If the cat would stop and reflect on, if cats can stop and reflect on stuff like that. I don't don't know. I think, I think there's some truth in that. I do think it's, it's good to say we aren't God. We aren't the creator. He is so high bows, but cats aren't made in our image either. Cats are completely different. The Bible insists that humans are made in his image. So that that does add a wrinkle to it. I do think that there are things that we can experience of God that are much more like um, our normal human relationships. But, But I understand the point the guy was trying to make. Well, then let's, armed with that knowledge, let's talk about this curious passage in Genesis 18. I think most people are familiar with that, people who read the Bible. Regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, God speaks to Abraham about what I'm about to do. Abraham then intercedes for Sodom. He enters into a kind of negotiation in which God seems content to participate. If, if 45 will repent, will you spare the city? If 40 will repent, will you spare the city? If negotiation is possible, it, it suggests that change is possible. Anytime you enter a negotiation, you're hoping to move your partner in negotiation in one direction or another to make a change. Yeah. Is Abraham attempting to change God's mind? I, I think so. It, sound, it certainly sounds like he does. I don't, we wouldn't, I don't think any of us who are God people would be surprised. I we try to change God's mind all the time. And uh, a lot of us go into prayer at least thinking there's a chance that, uh, so you go to God because you do believe he's all powerful or you hope he's all powerful for those of you who aren't believers, but you've started praying maybe, you know, this sort of prayer, God, if you're there and you're real, I want to know you. But we kind of go into it thinking that God's, you know, you, you ask him for stuff, hoping he can change things. And I mean, the question is, does he change? Uh, I think we have, I think it's cer- certainly clear in the Bible that we have permission to engage with him in a way that Abraham does. I, that, that You go to God and he doesn't say, hey, y- y- you know, I'll call you. You don't call me. Like, I'll let you know if I need you. I got my own plan. I'm working here. You just kind of sit sit back, you know, I'll take care of stuff. You don't need to come in here telling me how to do things. Or God certainly does not act like that at all in Scripture. He engages with his people and a free and open relationship. All the time, of course, he being the creator God and we being the created humans. But he always is willing to engage with his people. Let's talk about the book of Jonah here for a second. People are familiar with that story pretty much. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. He doesn't do it. He goes the opposite direction. He winds up in the belly of the great fish. Then by chapter 3, he's back, and now he's going to go to Nineveh. God tells tells Jonah to, to go to Nineveh and preach to the people there. So Jonah tells the Ninevites, quote, 
Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In response to Jonah's preaching, the Bible says the people of Nineveh believed God. The people repented. And then verse 10 says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and, this is the English Standard Version, God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Yeah. Now, for some of this, this is mind-blowing on two levels. I'm not in the habit of thinking about God repenting. Right. The rest of us, but not God. Yeah. And this seems to suggest that God was planning to do evil to the city of Nineveh, but he repented of that evil. Right. I'm thinking God doesn't do evil, and God doesn't repent, so I'm confused by this. Can you help me? So, so God was going to do evil to them. He was going to punish them. For that, that's, that, that was not going to be pleasant. He was going to punish the them for their sins. difference between God was going to punish them and God was going to do evil to them, in my mind. They would have certainly thought of it as evil, bad things happening to them, however that was going to look, you know, a, uh-huh. a plague or a foreign army coming through. They would certainly have considered that as, as bad, as evil. Um, but so it, God repented. This is what the text you just read said. God, God changed. He, he's on, you know, repentance just means you're on one path and you turn around and go on a different path, a, a different trajectory. God has a plan. Um, Jonah went and preached there. The people repented and God changed. God changed. Um, I, just by itself. That doesn't trouble anybody, I don't think. It doesn't. That that story by itself is hardly worth any sort of like consternation. I mean, God says He's going to punish them because they they are morally evil. The Ninevites were morally evil. They've done a lot of horrible things. A very brutal. The Assyrian culture was extremely brutal. God's going to punish them. They repent. He changes. Now the. What makes it interesting, interesting slash difficult to understand, is all the things in the Bible that we have about God not ever repenting. God, you know, he doesn't change his mind. There's a classic text in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament which says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Malachi 3 verse 6, he says, I am the Lord, I do not change. So, you know, what are you going to do with that? You also have... I don't know. I'm, I think yeah. I'm getting more confused as we go here. Right. You also... Lots of texts that talk about how God plans out the end from the beginning. Like, he is sovereign over all of history. He organizes the things they want to... get. The, 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 he organizes the way things go and the way that he wants them to go. Isaiah 55 says... Uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 46. Uh, God says, I am God and there is no other. I'm God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God, he declares the end from the beginning. Everything that happens, it's according to his own counsel and his purposes and those purposes are going to stand. But then you get to text like the one you just read where God changes and so that's where that that's that's where the difficulty comes in is how how do those two things go together, which loops us back to your original c- comment back there when you quoted Isaiah fifty five back at the beginning is that are are we gonna we're not going to be able to so we can say two things one was we could one I think this would be the wrong option is to say well those two things don't go together it doesn't make any sense to me so 
I'm not really, I don't know if I can believe in a God like that. This doesn't make any sense. What is it? Are you all powerful? Do you decide how you're going to do everything? Or do you let human beings change your mind by, you know, by repenting or by praying? Um, which is it? Uh, it's just, it's contradiction. I think the second move, and this is, I'm way more comfortable with this move, um, is to say, well, if he's God, He's going to be able to do things that I can't understand, and I think this is one of those things where he, at the same time, can, can, can be completely in charge of everything that happens in human history, whatever that means. And we've talked in here before about the problem of evil, too, like the problem of the Ninevites getting punished or the problem of cancer, the problem of the Holocaust, and how all those things work with the good God who's completely sovereign. And, and you can, if, if the listeners want to, you can go back and look at those episodes uh, where we talked about those sort of things. We can talk about them in the future if it makes, uh, if, if, if it would be helpful to anybody as well. But, you know, back to our point today without digging into that uh, deeper topic that there's a God who completely is in charge of every little thing that happens. And yet in the moment to moment relationship that he has with his human creatures, he is willing to listen to them and to be changed by what they do and by what they say to him. I think that's a, an incredibly mysterious and yet deeply personally satisfying way of looking at the world. I say, I need both of those things. I need a God who's completely in charge, not powerless, It is in control. But I also need a God who is person enough to engage with me in what I need. I need to know when I go to him in prayer that he's genuinely engaged with me and listening to me and caring for me and wanting what's best for me. I need both those things. If one of those things is missing, I don't really have a God. If I, if, you know, if I have a God who deeply cares for me, but really is not in control, then he's not God. If I have a God who's completely in control, not interested in me or what I need or me personally at all. I guess he could be sort of a lowercase g God in a pagan sort of sense, but he's not the personal redeeming covenantal saving God of the Bible that I've come to know. I need both those things. Let's go back and talk about Abraham for a second here in that negotiation that uh, we looked at in Genesis 18. Anytime we enter into a negotiation, you're going to go in and buy a new car. Mm -hmm. And you know how much money you want to spend. Uh, the salesman is going to try to talk you into spending more money. You're going to try to talk him into spending less money. And there you go. And you spend however many minutes you spend in the showroom there trying to come to an agreement. The salesman doesn't know how it's going to come out. You don't know how it's going to come out. You just have to go through the process. What if 45 people will will repent. Will you then spare the city? Yeah. But it's an entirely different thing. And I guess this is kind of an abstract question. When one of the parties in the negotiation already knows what the outcome is going to be. Right. So if God knows what the outcome of his negotiation with Abraham, what it was going to be, and the outcome was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, then how does that change this whole question? Why, what is the purpose of entering into a negotiation with God, which I think I've heard you say we're free to do, if one of the parties already knows what the outcome is? Yeah, this is part of the mystery, is that 
why pray to a God? You know, why pray to God, heal me of my cancer when he already knows what's going to happen? And he's in charge of all of it. God has the power to heal cancer, I believe. Why, why pray to him and ask him when he already, when he already knows? So here's, here's the answer is that God uses prayer to change things. And so if you insist on, so you need to go back and fit those two things together. I, I can't do it. I personally can't do it. I can't fit in. I, I, and my, my head won't contain the idea that God's completely in charge of everything and knows whether I'm going to die from cancer or whether I'm going to be healed from cancer. And yet my prayer to be healed, he will take that into effect and use that to make the decision. I, I don't know how all that works. But if he's God, I've got to let him live outside my head to a certain extent. I've got to let him not make sense to me and actually just embrace the mystery. So the mystery, uh, what the mystery means is, and I'm kind of repeating myself, is how does, how does this affect my prayer life? It affects it a lot because, A, it gives me the confidence that I can go to God and when I ask him to do things, he will do them sometimes because I asked him. B, it gives me the confidence that he's completely in charge and he is going to do what's right. He's already got the whole thing planned out and it's going to be good. And I need both of those, both of those things going in. You've heard before, some of the, our Christian listeners will have heard before when this question is discussed, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us when we pray. So first of all, I think prayer does change God. That does come in, that does in scripture. I also think that prayer changes us too as well. But maybe this reality, maybe what we're talking about this morning, maybe it can do more than, you know, the question of does, does prayer change us or does it change God? Maybe the question is, should this truth change our prayers? Like, should it change the way we pray? Should it change, should it change the level of confidence and boldness? Sometimes we pray with desperation. I don't mean a good desperation. Sometimes like when you're passionate about something and you're praying about it, that sort of desperation I think is spiritually healthy. It's an important part of any relationship that you know, the people that you're engaged with, the person that you're talking to, that they're emotionally involved in the relationship with you. I think that's healthy. But I'm talking about the kind of desperation that needs, I need God to do this now, and if he's not going to do this, I'm lost. Maybe all of this truth that we're talking about today can help us for those of us who are Christians and those of you who are non-Christians to, to start to get a feel for this sort of thing, to help us to pray in a way that says, God, I'm praying and I'm asking you for this because I know that you're powerful enough to do this. And if I ask you for it, you could hear me and change this. But I'm also praying because I trust you. And the thing that I'm asking for, I don't know if it's the best or not. I don't know if it would be best for the world that I live in for my own personal life, for my family's life, if I survive this cancer or if I die from the cancer, I don't know because I'm not God. I know you are. So I'm praying and I'm asking you to heal my cancer, but I'm also praying and I'm asking you to do whatever is best that you think. And that kind of prayer, I think that grapples with both of these realities, the God who's completely in charge and the God who listens to us and hears our prayers and responds to them. So let's talk about this text from the Gospel of Luke. I want to come at this in two directions. The first one here, 
Verse 1 in chapter 18 says, and I'm quoting, and he, meaning Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So if there is a situation that can cause us to lose heart, the person you're talking about who's got cancer and is facing death, maybe, does not want to die and is praying pretty fervently with focus, please, God, heal me. Uh, if that healing doesn't come, then he will lose heart. Right, yeah. And then Jesus says, keep praying and don't lose heart. Yeah. Can you work that out for me? Yeah, keep on keep on talking to God. As, as, Why can't it just be, well, God just, you know, if you know the outcome. If it's going to be healed, then let's do it now. What is the purpose of going through an exercise where I fight becoming depressed or discouraged, where I try not to lose heart right. in order to get the effect of the outcome I'm looking for yeah. by continuing to pray. Yeah. Well, so this is this is going to bring us to the real purpose of prayer, which is relationship. Um, the purpose of prayer is not to ask God, you know, to save Nineveh or to heal my cancer or, uh, you know, th- 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 those are all great parts of prayer, but the real purpose of God is, is interpersonal communication with the sovereign creator of the universe, the supreme being of the universe, who has invited us to have a relationship, a personal relationship with him. So, you know, when Jesus says, pray and don't lose heart, what does that mean? Uh, don't, don't, lose, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart and what? Don't lose, don't get discouraged because why? Well, I, th- I think don't get discouraged because God does all things well. Because God listens to us, that that line is about trusting God. You know, keep on praying and don't get discouraged. Keep on praying and trust me. Don't get down. Trust me that I've got this. So, I mean, this is the main purpose of prayer: is not to ask for things, but to actually communicate with the supreme being of the universe. He wants a relationship with us, and a part of that relationship is the give and take of communication. Of you know, you know, Christians for a long time, for thousands of years now, have said the heart of our faith is reading God's word, hearing His voice in the Bible, listening to hear His voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit, and talking to Him, responding to Him, having conversations with Him as well. That's the goal, and part of that's definitely going to be so. So you know, I have a relationship with with my kids, and you know, my kids tell me about their day at school and my kids um, um, ask me to give them a ride uh, you know to the to the golf match that they're playing in uh, my kids also uh, you know they ask for money uh, they also have questions about you know uh, can I go out tonight but th- my kids my conversation with my kids is all over the place and it includes requests. Requests for money, requests for permission to do X, Y, or Z. It also includes conversation about something we both were reading or a movie that we watched or, uh, you know, what, where do we want to go for dinner tonight? All these kind of con- – this is a normal part of human relationship. Now, we come to God sometimes thinking like, oh, pray, prayer to God, that's to ask him to do stuff for us. Th- that would be as um, – relationally insensitive as if my kids only talked to me when they needed $20 to go 
go to a fast food restaurant with their friends. God wants a relationship with us. And part of that is the fact that we need things from him. That's, de- it's not, that's not bad. It's, it's, it's a part of it. But more than that, he wants us, more than wanting to be cured from cancer, he wants us to want him. He wants us to want him more than we want cured. And part of prayer is learning to love him and to want him more than we, you know, I want my kids to want a relationship with me more than they want the gas money. And part of my relationship is to encourage them in that way. And same way with God, you know, we go to him, not necessarily because we want him to do stuff, but because we want him and he wants us. And he is, and part of part of the him that we learn to want is the mysterious him that is completely in charge of everything that's going to happen in the future to us and to the world at large, but also the God who wants to talk to us. And sometimes his mind, sometimes what he does is completely affected by how we pray. So that parable that I mentioned in Luke 18 is the parable of the persistent widow. Right. She persisted in asking a judge to give her justice against her adversary. This is a powerless woman because she is a widow. She has no man to represent her in the patriarchal culture of the right. day. And the, at first, the judge will not. He does not give her justice against her adversary. But eventually, he relents. Jesus then says, quote, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Yeah. So is this, this sounds like encouragement from God for us to nag and badger him as long as it takes until we get what we want. Is that what he's saying? Well, nag and badger is wrong uh, to keep on praying because, so the point of the parable is here's this unjust judge is completely corrupt, does not have any interest in helping this woman Which is another problem because God is using an unjust judge to somehow make a comparison to himself, the all just... Well, just yeah, judge. he's making an argument from the from the lesser to the greater. That's why he so so. Here's an unjust judge, not interested in helping this woman out. She pesters and pesters and pesters him, and finally, he's like, "I'm sick of seeing her face in the courtroom every day. Just give her what she wants and get her out of here." Jesus's argument is, is God works. No, no, no. Jesus's no. argument is, if that woman can get from an unjust judge what she wants just by pestering, you who have a loving heavenly Father, do not lose heart. Because he's going to do what he's way more eager to help you. And so if you ask him, you know, God, will you do X or Y or Z? And then the next day he hasn't done X or Y or Z. Don't give up. Don't be like, well, you must not like me. Even an unjust judge, when approached frequently enough, will cave in. How much more your heavenly father, who's eager to help you. And just be patient. I mean, it's another way of saying maybe it's not the timing that you want, but you let God do the timing and don't give up and don't think of him as unjust and like I'm pestering him, but keep on going back to him. I, I, you know, as I'm talking here, I feel guilty because one of my kids is a nagger. One of my kids is pesters about stuff, you know, and this person. God bless that child. That's what I say. They'll get in their head what they want and uh, they'll say over and over and over again, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. In fact, a friend of this person told me recently that my child said to them, uh, I've learned to ask my parents once a day for this thing because I, I want to keep on bringing it back to them. But and if I ask for more than- And then you cave. 
Yeah, well, sh- <laughs> uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But for, first of all, it's not once a day. That's They're lying to their friend. It's way more than once a day when they pester about <laughs> stuff. But second of all, I, as I'm saying this, I, I don't want to be the kind of father that says no to them. I want to be more like my heavenly father who says yes more when I can. So it's just a little slice of my guilt that I'm experiencing as we're I talking that, about this text. I think that's typical for most parents. Yeah. Uh, but but God, though, is not like that. God longs to answer our prayers. And um, I, I think th- I, I've said this in here before. This is kind of a, a Tim Keller's paraphrase of a John Newton quote where he says, if you knew what God knew, what's going on in your life right now is something that that is what you would be praying for. And I think that's valuable. I'm not necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily important to pray that the bad things that are happening in my life continue, but to trust God enough to know that when I ask him for things, if I ask him, if I ask God for money, he's going to answer that prayer. He's he's going to give me what I need. Now, it might not be money, but it definitely will be what I'm looking for. I might be looking for financial security or uh, happiness. He might not use money to give me those things, but he looks at me and says, oh, Aaron, I know what your heart wants even more than you do. I know what you need more, even more than you do. I will give you this good thing in my time. It might not be exactly what you're asking for because that would not be good for you, but I will give you this good thing in my time. And to, to learn to love and trust a God who's like that is, I think, an important outcome of this conversation. Will you indulge me here for a second? I want to speculate a little bit. I want to go extra biblical uh, just for fun. I think about John the Baptist, who uh, was thrown in prison by Herod, and I think most accounts believe that John the Baptist was in prison for months, maybe even more than a year, sitting in a rotten prison. And it's beyond my ability to believe that John the Baptist, somewhere along the way, didn't utter a prayer, maybe a silent prayer, God, can you get me out of this prison? I know that if I were in prison for months, I would pray that prayer at some point. And the man about whom Jesus said was the greatest born among women winds up getting his head cut off. Not only does he die, but he, it's, it's a disreputable way to die. He doesn't get what he wants. Right. I assume he wants. Um. That's pretty discouraging. Here is a man who the Bible says has high standing in the eyes of God, I guess because of his office, the forerunner to the Messiah, and he suffers the most, the greatest indignity at the end of his life. And if that is the possible outcome to my prayers, it almost makes me think, why, why, why bother? Well, you know, holy cow, that's just uh, that's just not what we are trying to accomplish when we're told to be persistent and to not lose heart. It's just running in the opposite direction. Yeah. What do you think? So um, if you, let's say that you were in prison and let's say that, let's say that you're, you're, you're 75 years old and you remember a time when you were in prison unjustly back in your 20s, let's say, 50 years prior. And you'd been in that prison for quite a long time. And you prayed and you said, God, get me out of here. And then he did. You were bailed. And whatever justice was served and you you were out and you were a free person. 
Looking back on that from the perspective of 50 years later, you would say, I prayed, I asked God to deliver me, and he did. And it'd probably be fairly easy to forget the seven months in when you were praying and thinking, God does not hear me at all. In the scope of your whole life, you could look back and you could say, God was in charge of that. He answered that prayer and he, he did that good, you know, got me out of there. Um, one way to look at it from John the Baptist's perspective is to think, you know, let's fast forward a million years, a billion if you want to, because after a million, numbers don't make any sense to me. But so let's say uh, it's a million years from now, we're in the new creation, and John looks back on his life, and he remembers being in prison and praying that God would get him out. But it's so far in the past that the, it's, it's just a little tiny paragraph in the story of his entire life. And the paragraph says, John the Baptist was in prison, unjustly, prayed to get out. He was beheaded, dead for a few years. Jesus raised his body from the grave. And now for the past million plus years, he's been doing what John, whatever John the Baptist is going to do in the new creation. In a similar way, he would probably look back and say, I prayed and God got me out of there. Look, here I am. And I think that's probably, we don't know. In the middle of it, it always looks bad. And we don't know from the perspective of even just our own lives, let alone eternity, what that will look like when it's over. And I, I know, honestly, I know a lot of people like this who, you know, they'll get sick and they'll show up at church. I have a friend in, in my community group who was telling me about um, her parents who do this. So the dad will need open heart surgery and, uh, show up at church for a few months and then he'll, you know, then he'll drift away. And then five or six years later, he'll need to have a procedure done again. So he'll come back to church for a little bit. And, you know, from his perspective in the middle of that, he finds out he needs open heart surgery and he's scared. He is just scared. And then after a little bit of time, everything goes well and he kind of forgets all about it. And I think that uh, it's a a negative example, but but I think in the midst of our suffering and bad times, I think we think this is it. This is my reality. This is just horrible. But from God's perspective, across the spectrum of of time infinite, it's not that. It's going to be just a paragraph, if that, in the story of our lives in the future. And just to trust him for that and to say, you know he's the God who does all things well, but he's all he's also invited me to pray, God get me out of this prison, and then He will answer that prayer guaranteed. Now, I, who knows how He does it? It might be that John John the Baptist prays that prayer. It might be that He gets released. We know now from the perspective of history that's not what happened. It might be that He gets killed, but He spends some time, his body in the ground, his soul safe with Jesus, and then when Jesus returns. And that's going to be his deliverance. That's going to be his healing. That's going to be his escape from prison, is the resurrection from the dead on the last day. But in either case, Jesus will answer that prayer. And that eternal outcome is much higher than any temporal outcome, sure. satisfactory outcome we might experience, as much higher as his thoughts are than our right. thoughts are high. Let me just ask, put it this way and get your reaction to this. We face adversity, we face evil, we pray to God to change our circumstances in such a way that we persevere through it. We're told to be persistent, and so 
it looks like it's not changing, so we pray and ask God to change his mind about our situation so that it goes in a different direction, and we pray and we pray and pray. What we don't realize is that while we think we're praying that God would change his mind, what we're really doing is praying that God would change our minds. Does that make any sense? Yeah, sure. Do you agree with that, disagree with it? Oh, yeah, for sure. We always want, as the creatures, we always want our minds to be molded and conformed to his mind. And part of that is the not losing heart, is to trust him, to, to, to trust him, to, to know on one hand, like James 5 says, um, the, the, the prayer of a righteous man works a lot. Uh, the, the prayer of a righteous man is effectual while it's working, the ESV says. Prayers work. They do that. But they, they, they actually, God responds to prayers. He interacts with them. It affects the way he does things. But to, in his sovereign wisdom, to let him be the one who decides what the good is, that's the change that we need, is the change of learning to trust him more, to pray, not my will, but thine, to, um, to pray prayers of praise, to not just pray re- prayers of request, but to pray prayers of adoration and praise and thanksgiving and confession of sin and lamentations when we're upset and rejoicing when we're happy to let us be changed in the middle of this relationship. And the only thing actually that can do that is a God who is powerful, but who also interacts with us in a way that he responds as well. It's the only thing that will do this. And that's what we crave. And that's what we get in Jesus. Dear listener, be persistent. God is listening. We like to speak to questions that come from you. Today's conversation was prompted by one such question. If you have a question you'd like Aaron to address, go to stjamesglencarbon.org. There at the top of the page, you'll see an email link, contact at stjamesglencarbon.org. You can enter your question there. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rather.